Welcome to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. And today, we have a special guest with us for the full hour, Tom Lee of Funstrat. We're talking everything from the inflation trade to meme stocks and, of course, crypto. Let's get started. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. IRL. I haven't seen you in how long? The last time I saw you, you had blonde hair. No, I had a martini in my hand. It was last night, actually. (laughs) So I haven't seen you in a year and a half, and I've seen you twice in 20 hours here. How lucky are we? Yes. Thanks for joining us here, man. And we got Danny Moses here in the studio. Yep. yep. We used to work together, Tom and I back then. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yep. We used to work together. We did. We were at Oppenheimer together, late 90s, early 2000. I left in 0203. When did you leave there? I left Oppenheimer in 96. 96 you left? Yeah. You know where he went. I stayed in touch with Lee and yeah, yeah. Chris you were Kutowski working with and John guys. Parks. And yeah. You were on your way to bring down Kidder Peabody, right? Or or was that... I got there. Yeah, wait, am I, am I the curse? Because I was at Kidder, <laughs> and then that went I on. saw you tweet something the other day about your name being on some sort of research report from Kidder Peabody in the 90s. I couldn't remember what year. Yeah, What year did right. they go down? That was the year, 1994. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Okay, fair enough. Uh, that's what I... Oh, wait, wait. So we have, we have Guy Dami. Parts unknown, Guy Dami. Where are you, Guy Parts Dami? unknown. This IRL stuff, I don't know. I got to say, Danny Moses is like the Kevin Bacon of Wall Street. I mean, he's worked with just about everybody at one wait, time wait, or wait. another. Tom, you know how much of a fan I am of your work. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here, Guy. Tom, we had a line last week because Guy started his career at Drexel Burnham, and Danny made a comment about it. And I said, Danny, wait, hold on a second. You were either worked at Drexel Burnham or were short Drexel Burnham. Right. We just have to reiterate that again because that is that is you are uh, you are could be both in Danny's case. Well, I mean, it doesn't, I, one does not preclude the other. Exactly. Yeah, fair enough. Let's do it, Tom. We, we have you here for the whole hour. Thank you for joining us. There was a lot of expectations building up to this Fed meeting that we had. There was like, as I was calling it, the pundit class. They were like, literally, they had the pitchforks out. They were like, something better happened. Did anything happen yesterday at that FOMC meeting? I mean, in terms of lasting effects, let's say beyond today and tomorrow and Friday, I think it was largely a nothing burger. You know, meaning I think the Fed was a bit on its heels a month or two ago when when people were questioning whether inflation was transitory. But I think over the last couple of weeks, I think their central view is proving to be more correct. And I think the market is just adjusting to that view. Talk about, let's give them something to talk about yeah. yesterday, because I think Powell said, okay, it's time to remove, talk about talking about tapering, and we're going to We'll be talking about tapering soon, if I heard him correctly. But the first question that he took, first of all, his speech was like an election speech. It was like, all right, I'm here for you. Yeah. I got this. He talked about a lot of things other than the mandate. And then the first question that came, he started talking in circles. He actually created a wage price spiral of his own when he started saying, I think the job market is only going to get stronger. I think that wage prices could go up even more, but I'm hopeful that eventually that abates and supply meets demand. But at the same time, raising the inflation expectations to where we were, but then standing on the 2023 number, which by definition 
would not be transitory since that two that, that I don't know what the definition of transitory is. Well, that isn't that it. And and you just said something, Tom Lee, that might have triggered Guy Adami. You said that the markets have come around to the Fed being correct. Isn't that what you said? I'm not but towards the central Fed's central view. Yeah, Guy, what do you make of that? I think he's 100 percent right. I mean, in terms of the markets, I think Tom's right that the markets have come around to the fact that the Fed seems to have it right. I mean, I just completely disagree with what they've been doing for the last 12 years. But as they say. That's what makes markets. Tom, what I found interesting yesterday, maybe it was just sort of a slip of the tongue, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but Jerome Powell, something to the effect, you know, we're not ready to declare victory or take a victory lap. I'm saying to myself, what are you kidding me? It's like being 3-0 and in the start of a 162-game baseball season. I mean, they're not even close to a victory lap. Dan Nathan's making faces at me, I'm sure, Tom, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's, um, look, the future's uncertain. We're just coming out of a depression a global pandemic. There's been behavioral changes. There's supply chain glitches. There's hoarding, that including semis and lumber and other commodities. And then there's revenge spending. So in the midst of all that, I do think the market has taken a specific central view about this is super inflationary. And the Fed has been in a camp that it's transitory. But I think one of the key things, and I'm oversimplifying it, is a lot of people say you can either be right on level or time, but you can't get both right. And I think the market is expecting the Fed to get both right. And in the market's minds, if they think inflation happens in three years, you have to price it in today. But as you know, that's not necessarily how markets behave. It's hard to predict. But I think the Fed is just saying that there's either timing or level. Right. Since you quoted Jim Morrison, I'll finish the quote. The future's uncertain, but the end is always near, Tom. Are we anywhere close to the end in terms of their participation in the market, in your opinion? Um, God, I'm not sure what part of the Fed, but I don't think so. I mean, this is going to take quite a long time to unwind. And, And it may even be that the Fed could potentially do a lot more in the next couple of years too. So I, I'm not even sure that they're at the limit of what kind of tools and policy they might implement actually. There's just a lot of things that conflict with one, the, even the, what the Fed, Fed said themselves about how, how strong you know the markets have been, come back to still do quantitative easing though, Tom, to still purchase $120 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities, treasuries at this point, especially when the 10-year is still pretty suppressed at 150. The, the taking away the talking about talking about, I feel that that was like the first shot, right? They they kind of sent a message and they wanted to see the reaction. And ten year really didn't. I mean, it moved seven basis points quickly in a line, and then it kind of came back in. The two ten spread though is starting to narrow a little bit. Still pretty wide at one twenty nine. That was just you know at one forty five not too long ago. I'm just wondering. The market's pretty efficient, right? And you're pretty good with that. It's telling us something else. And to say here, and you're bullish, and you've been right. Are you saying the market can't handle? An unwind of QE? Are you saying that the Fed's not going to take a chance to do it and ruin their spectacular thing that they've created? I think the Fed is going to unwind a lot of this, but the timing seems early to do it in 2021, even in 2022. And I know the markets think levels and asset prices have done well, but the economy is still fragile. There's still landlords that haven't gotten their rents. There's a lot of people that have been displaced. There's people who died, might have left people in economic ruins too. So I know there's a price to pay, but I, I would say I understand the Fed's view to, to be patient on this. I just go back to post-financial crisis. 
we were obsessed with double dip recessions in 2010, 11, 12. We were obsessed with where this rolling credit crisis was going to Europe and then to Asia. And, you know, the Fed, they had a lot of pressure to taper QE back then, but they didn't do it until 2014 or 2015 in earnest. And they didn't start raising interest rates a quarter point every other meeting for a couple of years. I don't really understand what the hurry is. I do understand that $40 billion a month in, in MBS and $80 billion in treasuries. Is there a way, Tom, that they can start? And there was also an obsession with QE1, 2, 3, that sort of thing. And I don't think we have that. So is there a way, though, that they could start tapering at least some of the asset purchases to at least get some of the criticism off their back? You guys are asking a great question. I wish I could give you a more fulsome answer. But as you know, the Fed has a lot of policy tools that they can play with on the fringe. So it doesn't have to be asset purchases. It could be interest on reserves. It could be capital requirements, lending requirements. Remember, the Fed has a lot of other policy tools, including communication with banks. Let me ask it a different way, Tom. What can the Fed do or what would they do that would make you less bullish? What would be the one thing that they would do? Is it is it a taper and watching rates move higher? Is it is it actually raising rates? To me, the biggest risk is the Fed loses credibility. Remember, because the day the market loses confidence in the Fed and the message and their policy tools, I think communication is 80% of the power of the Fed. So how do you measure that? Because I think that is the right answer. How do you measure that? Because when will you know that? When the market's down 10 20%? Because what I'm concerned about, Fed has an opportunity. I'm not saying they should be raising rates. That's not logical right now, just in the macro scheme. But at least when you raise rates, you have room to lower rates. And I understand what you're saying, Tom. We'll pull some new tool out. New acronym will come out. We don't know what it's called yet, but it'll exist. Believe me, it'll come. But this is not how the market functions. And I go back to, and you made a great point about generational millennials right now that are going to be the buyers of stock, the people that run the economy. But I will tell you that entire generation was brought up with moral hazard. They've only known, think about the average age of millennials, what, 32, 33, 34, somewhere in there, I think, from a demographic perspective. They don't know anything except that the Fed has your back. And I'm not saying that it's an automatic bull market when the Fed has, but they haven't seen a cycle. This is why you see something in 1987. You saw .com. You see the global financial crisis. It's every, that's why things happen every 10, 15, 20 years because a generation that skips or a generation that doesn't feel the pain. I don't know when the market starts to sell off what the buy signal is going to be to the point. Is it a multiple of the S&P? What is it? I guess that's what I'm asking. If you had a playbook and, and the market were to sell off, what caused the market to sell off, and then where do you buy it? I mean, that's a, that's a, there's a lot to discuss there, but foremost, as fact pattern, the minute people think the Fed is changing its playbook, even by just grabbing a glass of water, we know the markets are going to have a tantrum. So is that a 10 15% drawdown? It could easily happen. But I think the Fed knows this, but I think they're more concerned about a tightening of financial conditions that could result from that. So I think, you know, S&P down 15%, it could happen this year, even without the Fed. But if it raises the risk that it's actually a 30% drawdown, then that's a policy mistake. I'm not looking to make people's eyes glaze over, and I'm, I don't think we want to define what this is. But on Thursday, we saw something, I think, interesting, and maybe a sign. Uh, you know, I'm always looking for the signs of excess and largesse. Reverse repo market was up significant, like record level, $755 billion, complete spike to the upside on the back of the Fed changing the rate by five basis points. Is that a sign that there's just too much liquidity floating around the system? And is that potential warning sign down the road? Everything should be watched. 
I think not only is there a lot of liquidity, I think a lot of markets aren't as liquid as we think either. I mean, the depth isn't as strong as it was pre-2008. I don't think it ever really recovered. But I want to mention something Danny said, which is that the millennials have only had the Fed at their back. I would say if that was true, surveys don't show this. Millennials are the most distrustful generation. They have almost no faith in government entities. They hate banks. You've seen the surveys. It's notorious. But first data survey, 76% of millennials would rather go to the dentist than go into a bank branch. Then why would they be involved in the markets? Is part of your thesis that there'll be the demand in the markets or it's just the economic impact of having them in the workforce? Well, I think the reason they don't like banks is because of the GFC. And they saw an uncle or a parent lose a home. Remember, one in five homes became a well, Danny, you know, this is something that you, is very close to you, but- I've heard that story. No, no. But what, what I'm saying is maybe I misinterpreted your report. Are you saying, because I, I thought you were saying that they will be part of the stock market. Correct. I do think so. So what you're saying is what I'm saying. They'll be part of the stock market. And I totally agree with you that they don't trust anything. They grew up with watching their parents go through this crisis. And that's my point. They saw it go through crisis and now they're coming into the market. And I would tag on to your comment. They'll be quick to get out is my point when they'll say, you know what? We lost trust in this entire thing. We know we never should have been there. In the first place, I don't know if that's the case. It's just reinforcement after reinforcement that that the market's right. Yeah, or maybe to just add what you're saying, I think reflexivity is much higher today because the millennials don't trust banks, so they don't care what banks are going to say, and they trust technology and they do have faith in the Fed. So they have faith if, in the Fed. There you go. Yeah, so. but if the stock market falls, I think it could really affect the economy. And they have every reason to have faith in the Fed. Think back to Q4 2018. I know we reference this a lot. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was at 3%. They had been raising interest rates a quarter point for every few meetings or something like that. All of a sudden, there was some growth fears in, in, around the world, and people were like, ah, rates are too high. Stock market sold off 20%. What did they do at that December meeting or that January meeting? They did an about face, and then the next leg of this bull market. And then you think that we have this worse health crisis, an economic crisis, a black swan event in 100 years. The stock market sells off 35%. The Fed got moving in February. I mean, they got moving with monetary policy action much quicker than Congress and Treasury, right, and everything like that. And that was it. We had a two-month bear market. That was it. But let me just ask you this. I mean, I know people are criticizing policymakers, but what do you guys think is misallocated real capital? Right? Because that's the time the Fed has to actually intervene, right? Because you guys all lived through the dot com. We know what was misallocated there. And of course, in 2005 to 2007, very strong evidence of misallocated capital because homes owned per person was out of whack or cars owned per person was out of whack. I think that was unaccounted for capital. I think they misjudged the leverage in the system mm-hmm. because the banks weren't reporting it correctly. It wasn't looked at. The VARs were wrong, as they say. The value at risk were, were, were completely wrong. I think the risk premium is wrong in the market in general. I think the discount rate is too low for risk in general, but I do think there's pockets. I'll let Dan and Guy go on this, but I do think there's pockets. And what is Bitcoin... If we do get ETFs and there are derivatives on Bitcoin, that's certainly a potential pocket of misallocated capital or misunderstood capital, I could say. But I think Guy's chomping at the bit here. It's interesting. I think that's a great question, Tom. And my problem with the Federal Reserve in a macro sense is I'm certain they're well-intentioned. I'm also confident throughout history there have been disastrous outcomes born of the best intentions. And I think to a certain extent we're seeing that now. I think you would agree that for 35 to 40 million of our fellow citizens. I mean, this is 1930 stuff going on, and you can't put it all at the foot of the Federal Reserve, but the chasm, the the wealth gap in this country has never been wider. And 
you know, they continue down the road with the same policies that I think are just sort of exacerbating that problem, Tom. Yes. Powell had a quote yesterday. I'm going to pull this. I only had to say yes. You only had to say yes. So Powell's quote was, this is an extraordinary, unusual time. There is no template and there's no experience. Be humble, be patient. I agree. That's the only thing you said. You know who said the same thing in 2008? (laughs) Ben Bernanke. Yeah. Here's what I want to push back, though, on what Guy just said. And you just answered yes. And I think you were being nuanced. I'm kidding. Because I really do want to hear what you have to say. I mean, if the Fed didn't do what they did and the Treasury didn't do what they did in 08 and 09 and 2010, we would have been in a Great Depression. If the Fed and the Treasury and Congress didn't do what they did maybe. last. What do you mean, maybe? I mean, well, I don't know the depths of it. It would have been ugly. You're right. I don't know the depths of it. The I don't, financial I don't know the crisis. Of... You were the guy going down to Orlando no, you, and talking no, to strippers I, about uh, taking me. mortgages out for. Oh, not that was me. That you. was Dan Nathan front stage. Not <laughs> no, that oh, was, I saw the movie. You know who didn't see the movie? You know. You know what? Real quickly, as a sidebar here. Guy Adami, we've been doing this podcast with Danny Moses for six months. Guy Adami has not read The Big Show. And you know what? He's Guy Adami has a screenplay. He's writing a book. I'm going to tell you what it's I on. I am, actually. And I took the no, time. But I, you know Hold what on. the problem with me, Tom, I, is I've been, look, I've been driving around aimlessly looking for my local blockbuster so I could rent the big short movie with mm-hmm. Dan, Danny Moses in it, and I can't find one. I took the time. And by the way, I think I think if there's publishers out there listening, you should buy it right now before it really? even finishes. It's fantastic. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, Guy. I like learning a lot about you, nuances I might not have known about. You're a deep guy. I am deep. I'm very deep. So pals up to be nominated again. We're going to hear something, my guess, is around Jackson Hole, maybe soon after, maybe before. I think the biggest risk to the market is he's not renominated. Love him or hate him, that would mean that he's going to be a scapegoat. It would mean that the stuff that he's been doing, he's behind the curve. So I would argue that Mr. O'Leary's cow out there may be Powell moving to the side or someone else being nominated. And I think the market would sell off a lot. I don't know. I'd love to get your thoughts on that before we close the book on Pal. Uncertainty doesn't sit well with markets. So if there's thought that the White House is thinking about thinking about changing there you Fed, go. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be good. All right. You're right. You know, it's interesting. I don't know who Mrs. O'Leary is, was, but the day of the Chicago fire, I think it was October 8th, 1871. And Jesus. I'm doing that from memory, by the way. Amazing. There was also well, a you fire were, you were in there. Chicago, Wisconsin, not to go down that rabbit hole, but you know, in terms of process, Tom, we have you on the show often for good reason, because not because you're generally always right, but because of the process. Recently, you know, you said get out of banks, get back into growth. I mean, it's prescient your calls. I don't want to drill down necessarily on the call. I'm much more interested, I think our audience would be in terms of the process behind the calls. I'm taking a deep breath because it's not that easy to answer. But if you asked us to explain what our team does every day. You know, number one, we view the future as uncertain. So we come to the office every day and realize we don't know the future. And the markets really tell us what to look at. But when we look at markets, it's not just stock prices. We really look for divergence. So to us, credit leads, derivatives markets is really where a lot of smart money bets and a lot of smart money does things. So we look at whether it's curves or futures or skew. Economic data matters, but as you know, it's the central view that we look at and we decide if the probabilities favor over and under. So we're really trying to understand where positioning is. We do speak to our clients all the time. I would say our firm collectively talks to 600 clients every week. And we're a small firm. There's 20 of us. So we're always sharing. You know, We use Slack. So we know really where the bodies are. And then 
I'm not trying to sound like uh, I'm switching disciplines, but I'm a big believer in looking at technicals. Simple ones, 200-day moving average and momentum. But increasingly, I'm spending time looking at the DeMarc indicators. But I'm probably the one I use most. If anyone has DeMarc, I use DeMarc combo count. So not just sequential, but version V1B. And uh, I look at all the time frames. In fact, on my Bloomberg, I think I've set up six simultaneous screens. So I'm combing the S&P across six screens daily just to see where things turn. And I think that's one of the things that pushed us on the financials is they were deteriorating. And I was just like, it's wrong for me to recommend them because I think rates, people were too optimistic on rates rising or too hawkish. I don't know you call it. Especially because we look at relationships between CPI and rates, GDP growth and rates, the curve. And so I thought I would take the under. And then if it was the under, I thought the the one sector that would take it in the gut is financials, and financials are already deteriorating, so we downgraded them last week. All right, let's talk about financials for a second, because one of the initial moves after that Fed meeting yesterday, looking at the dot plots, was that you're going to get rate hikes sooner than people expected, and the 10-year rip, it went from like 147 to 157, and banks were doing okay. And then today, it's a bloodbath. So explain how this is one group that's one of the best performing groups in the S&P 500, and you use a whole heck of a lot of inputs. You arrived at that call earlier in the week here. Why is it that the market or investors are coming around to it today, 12 hours after the Fed meeting? I feel like I oversimplify things, but I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is you can either get level right or time right. I think yesterday was an example where the market was jumping to the conclusion that when they saw the dot plot and the Fed, that the level and the time was now. And today the market's saying, well, I mean, look at claims was kind of weak. So why should rates shoot up today? So I think you had some positioning, some shorts getting covered, repositioning are affecting what rates do. But today, I would say today and tomorrow, in a way, I'm not even really watching markets closely this week because of quad witching. So I think there's also a lot of extra noise. It's not just FOMC. It's quad witching's huge now that options are so big. But do I still think rates are going to undershoot? Yes. So back to your process, because I'm envious because I try to be bullish. I I wake up every day thinking (laughs) today's the day I'm going to be bullish. You're so full of shit. Love you, bro. I mean, stop. (laughs) No, but today's the day. Like something's going to happen. I'm going to be, and it's not that I'm I'm more structurally bearish than I am bearish overall, because there's always places to put your money. Don't get me wrong. But when you're looking at the market, are you always thinking allocation? Or what has been the highest cash allocation that you've had in percentage of, I don't know if you give out kind of a bond equity cash portfolio that you've had, and what would make you, again, we, we talked about this before, I think you're right. I mean, credit always leads equity. That was the one thing that we saw in 2006 and seven that people weren't paying attention to was credit was leading and the equity market wasn't ignoring. Would that be something that would signal to you that credit spread's widening, which is why, back to the taper talk or rates moving higher, and let me just add that I, I think that financials have been underperforming a little bit for two reasons. One is the yield curve is flattening slightly. It's not steepening. That's negative for banks in general. And I think the commodity sell-off, I think people probably fear there's prop books at some of these banks mm, in various places. That's a great point. And they, that's right. There's going to be bodies carried out. Exactly. And they lend money against those, and it's levered there, and we know that. But anyway, those are my two thoughts. But I just want to get your thoughts on kind of a cash allocation. We don't really give formal allocations. But when we write our work and, and you look at our client mix – About 30% have to be fully invested. So the vast majority of our clients actually have discretionary capital. They don't have to own stocks. So we're not writing 
I know people say, oh, Tom, you're always bullish. You know, if you actually read our research and our clients, loyalty really speaks to it. Actually, in the last two years, excluding closures, guess how many institutional clients canceled on us in the last two years? Are we talking percentage or, or discretionary? Number? Like, say, we got to cancel your service because you suck. Six. Zero. All right. Did you We've raise? Not lost a single client. Did you raise prices? We've gotten a lot of involuntary price increases. Yes. That, I would call that inflationary. Guy, no, I'd no. put that in your inflation. Bucket. But it was I'm, not I, a. I'll put it was, that in the it was proactive. Yeah, we've had a lot of clients, and you know what? There were a lot of dips and wiggles and waggles. We were bearish on tech at the start of the year. We were telling people to get out. And then we turned bullish. I mean, I'm not bullish on everything. You know, when I was a wireless analyst, I had a, a many shorts. I made a lot of any's. You could ask Paul Soleil how much he hates me. To this day, he would love to see me. XO Wireless? Was that one of them? He was CFO of Nextel. Oh, okay. Nextel. Yeah. And then we went to Disney. But he and Dan Ackerson uh, would love nothing better than to see me uh, served on a taco or something. So they're not a client. No, okay. I mean, currently, <laughs> currently not a, a client. Unless they were going to counter trade me. Yeah, we mentioned commodities a lot. Dan Nathan had a wonderful call, but you know, the old saying in the commodities world: the cure for higher prices is, in fact, higher prices. And lumber's effectively been cut in half over the last you know month or so, maybe shorter duration than that. What are your views on commodities here, uh, Tom? Commodities are tricky. So I think there's commodities, and then there's oil and gold. So I think it's really three. I think oil is in its own structural environment that's quite positive because, as you know, it's both real supply constraints and then there's going to probably be a big demand surprise. And there's huge underinvestment. I mean, to pull that oil out of like deep ocean, you can't just turn it on. You know, it, it, there's lead time and there's now $300 billion of underinvestment just in the past 18 months. But lumber... These real-time commodities, as you know, there's a spot market, which is not the real price, and there's the futures, and the, and these markets are tiny compared to the actual real economy. So did I view lumber as inflationary? I mean, in a strange way, of course, it made everything expensive, but was that really lumber that high in demand? It, I guess now we're finding it out. It was, it was just a lot of hoarding and speculation. So, Tom, we've been talking about it for the last month or so, and it had to do predominantly in commodities. We, we know that a lot of S&P 500 companies in the Q1 calls were talking about inflation, input costs, that sort of thing. And we know that there was a lot of industries that have been impacted by that. And, you know, you used the, the expression before. I think Powell used it yesterday a lot, bottlenecks, as he was talking about um, the supply chains. I just think as long as I've been in this business, and I am not an economist, I am not a strategist, I am just a dumb trader, but every single time there is just this groundswell, you know, when, when something becomes an acronym or when it becomes like a thing like the transitory tantrum, it's just going to go the other way, you know? And when I think of, you know, transitory, I was calling it the transitory tantrum because there were no tantrum in markets, right? Silently, like you pointed this out, the 10-year Treasury yield picked this up two months ago or three months ago, and it started trending lower. But the calls in the pundit class and economists and all this stuff just kept on growing and growing. And that doesn't usually materialize in the thing that they want. And so do you understand what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's like that, that's what we call shouting at the markets. There's a lot of people shouting at the market. Yeah, and a lot of smart people too, right? And so I guess the last point I'll just make is what you just said about oil in particular in this special bucket. I don't like special buckets in the market because special buckets get really tippy-toppy, you know what I mean? They don't move around too well. Oil trade seems really crowded to me right now. Technically, and I've seen you in your notes at Fundstrat, you say this thing's got 80 all over it. If it gets through 80, it's going to 100, right? I mean, so from the technical standpoint, the supply demand standpoint, sentiment seems kind of odd. It seems very one-sided right now. Yeah. I don't know commodity 
traders that well, so I can't speak to them uh, if it's a crowded trade or not. From what I can see in terms of equity holders in energy stocks and not in oil, it's not a crowded trade. It's unimportant to most people. Most people don't want to bother with a 3% weight. I mean, Tesla matters more to them than getting XLE correct. So I would say the vast majority of equity buyers and sellers aren't even trafficking energy stocks right now. You know, it's an orphaned group. I mean, you guys know how many pads or pods are actually using. I mean, hey, you know, have energy teams. I think a lot of these multi-manager shops have shut them down. Right. They've been good alpha trades, though. I would just say is that they got so beaten down. I mean, Exxon, six months ago, we were talking about what's the probability of them cutting their dividend. I mean, that's the way the trade was. It was about to make a new 20-year low in the fall. And here we are. It's up 100 and something percent. But it did stop on a dime, right? Look at Exxon, right at 65. That was the breakdown level from February 2020. But the group was left for dead a year and a half ago, whenever it was. And we used to go to these roadshows, maybe a very sector. It could be financial. It could be tech. And you would know when the room was crowded at the Plaza Hotel that, and when it wasn't crowded. And when there was an energy conference and there's like, oh, I can get one-on-ones with any company that I want, you know, to buy, you know, you actually, that's actually when you should buy it versus, oh, you can't get in, you can't get in. And so they're all kind of behavioral finance aspect of that, which I'm sure you see in numbers in various crowded nature. You see those in things. I can show you some anecdotes. So, you know, I think on the institutional side, I think our work is read by like 60,000 we have 60,000 opens or something every week. It's a huge number. And, you know, energy, we did do account. Energy's been mentioned in 50% of our dailies this year. It's the single sector we've talked about the most. We barely ever get incoming emails about energy. There you go. But then we downgrade financials last week. And we were we did Zooms that Friday, Monday, Tuesday, people yelling at us about how, how we don't understand how banks are great companies. Why are we even you know, trying to offend them by downgrading financials. And yet, as you know, in energy, the opposite's true. Energy, they become better allocators capital. They're, they're focused on free cash flow. So nobody cares about energy. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, more with Tom Lee. Plus, we're going to be talking about those meme stocks, Dan, and the Mark Cuban missile crisis. Stay tuned. All right, Tom, last night you and I had a what I thought was a fascinating conversation, and we just really need to share bits and pieces of that with our listening audience here. All right, so we were talking meme stocks, and I've tried to explain what a meme stock is to Guy Dami in commercial breaks of fast money for the last six months or so. I think he's – Guy, you almost got it yet or no? No. I, I, honest <laughs> to God, I mean, I in theory I understand, but the whole thing is completely lost on somebody of my age and my intellect. Yeah. Lack of intellect, well, that, I should that, say. I was going to correct you there. All right. So Tom said something really interesting. And sometimes I wonder if Tom is trying to just kind of push back because it's more fun over a drink or whether he's playing an intellectual exercise. But he said something to me that really made me sit back in my chair. And he said, you know, in the late 90s, and I think we were talking about past market cycles, he said Intel and Microsoft were the original meme stocks. And I actually didn't even know how to respond to it yet. And then you made a couple points. Let's let's kind of have that conversation right here because you had a couple great points. And I think, of course, I had a couple great points. Yeah. Let's just jump back in, rewind some time. We were talking about meme stocks. And I think for the most part, today, the central view is meme stocks are just emotional trades, no basis for why these stocks are working. And I don't agree with that. I think markets are signal and meme stocks are often leading indicators of structural change or true stories. And so we were talking because I would just point out like Netflix 
used to be a meme stock. It was a retail, 98% retail owned. Tesla forever was a meme stock until, actually, you guys have to remember, it was really until early 2020. In the Russell, at that time, by the way, we did a report in February 2020, Russell 1000 growth managers, I think only 2% owned Tesla. It was the most under-owned growth stock, and it was the biggest weight. And it was, of course, some, the big, most shorted stock. So a lot of meme stocks, and you know, we could go back in time. I mean, RCA was originally a meme stock. You know, That was a darling of the, really of the 40s. Guy remembers. Yeah. Yeah. So my pushback, though, pretty simply, was that you, you literally just mentioned four or five companies that are absolutely transformative. They weren't understand. They were like, you know, from a valuation standpoint or technological standpoint, but they had massive secular shifts. They had as sure. kind of tailwinds. And so what's interesting to me about what's going on right now in 2021 is that when we look at the meme stocks, it's AMC, it's GameStop, it's BlackBerry, it's a bunch of other stuff that's been thrown on the trash heap. So maybe it was just a bit semantics, if you will. If we can just define a meme stock. So what I believe a meme stock is, is it's a good story stock that trades away from its fundamentals with the hope that it will someday grow into a real company to a degree. Did you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and maybe the, I would add that there's a cultish element to it. Not a cultish. No, there there's is. A fanatic, there's a enthusiastic element to it, meaning like people are- Cultish. They get together and they're going to say, let's collaborate and try to f- focus on a meme and Unfortunately, sometimes it's trying to be short busting, which I think isn't really the essence of a meme stock. But, but I'm going to just answer Guy's point. Because you guys all remember Nokia? Yeah. Remember, they were originally a hairdryer company. And then they started making mobile phones. And Mark Nobby at Solomon Brothers really liked the name. That was a hairdryer company. Started to make cell phones he thought were cool. GSM. Nokia was a meme stock in the beginning. It wasn't valued at 10 times earning. It was it's a ridiculous thing because this tiny mobile unit. So uh, do all these stocks today have to become home runs? No, but could GameStop reinvent itself with the capital? I mean, this is why I'd say future's uncertain. I mean, you know, you we can't say what Ryan Cohen's going to do here. And they're bringing a lot of people. GameStop could be a thousand bucks and it would be because they did things with the capital and the rejuvenation. I mean, you have to remember if if you're an employee at a company and your stock's a buck, you all come to work every day with a big L on your head, loser. Your stock's a hundred bucks, you suddenly feel empowered and I think it could change the culture. So I'm not against meme stocks. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put 100% in my portfolio, I'm not, but I'm not against them. No, it's interesting. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, Tom, but the environment that we find ourselves in For example, Rich Greenfield had a famous call a few months ago. He put a one-cent price target on AMC. And basically, since that day, there's been a ginormous bullseye on his back. And he's taken a lot of flack, not because the stock has gone higher, just the vitriol headed his way. In your seat, so much has changed in terms of just the anger and the the vitriol that comes at you. Can you speak to that? Because I'm sure you've been sort of amazed by it over the last six to nine months. Yes. I'm going to just mention something. I've been on the sell side since 1993, and many of you guys are buy-siders, but Danny was on the institutional side. I spent most of the last 27 years, people are yelling at us about everything. I would say I've always had to answer to a salesperson, head of research, a banker, because we said something offended. I might say anger, angry emails from clients and angry phone calls was 99% of my incoming work every day for the last 27 years. So 
when I look at the memes, I see people getting mad. I'm just like, this is still, I see this every day. So I don't think it's unusual. I think people get really personal when it comes to positions. And it's another thing we're always careful about at my company. We just don't shout at the market. We don't know the future. Someone else could be right. We could only provide people our data and our evidence. People hate bears. And if you're a sell side analyst, as you know, Tom, and you're bullish and wrong, you keep your job. If you're bearish and wrong, you get fired because yeah. you ruin the franchise. So that's an inherent, not flaw, but that's kind of guided that way. But I want to go back to the meme stock for a second. And you touched on my favorite company, Tesla, obviously, which I don't care for. But it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of meme stock, right? If it gets a certain level. But there's nothing in the business model. It's something like, I'll use it for example, that leads me to believe it's going to be around because it's in the S&P 500. Now it's made its way from the Russell to the S&P 500. So it has to be owned by a certain amount of people. But They've never proven anything other than the stock price going up that they have a sustainable model. I'm not saying it's going to zero tomorrow, but they don't make money. So is making you know, electric vehicle cars profitable? No, not for them. But everyone's memeing on their ability to have this Starlink and all this data and information that will one day be valuable, and it might. But it, to me, it's still a meme stock. Just because the stock goes up doesn't make it less of a meme stock. No, and- not at all. I mean, you're right. Let's just get some numerical fact pattern. There's 45,000 stocks roughly that went public since 1974. Spinoffs, everything, right? About half went to zero. In other words, like the average stock basically goes to zero. So if 60, 70% of the meme stocks implode, that's just a typical stock. The average stock doesn't actually keep up with the S&P. But the institutions, for the most part, have been historically the owners of the stocks that go to zero at one point. The institutions, may you can make even a more bullish argument if these meme stocks actually can fix their business models because of the money they're raising, there's upside because the institutions will own it. They're held by retail. And I think the danger here is that when these do sell off, it's you mentioned some Nokia or whatever in the dot-com, there was a lot of those. You and I saw a lot of those things, JDS, Uniphase, SDLI, all that stuff. Those were meme stocks to a degree because they never grew into what they were supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, all these fiber but, plays. But right? they got killed. It's retail that got killed. And they're going to, this time around, to your point, they're all collaborating. They're all talking. And we talked about this last week, blaming the shorts or whatever. You do your own work. People should do their own work, bottom up, and not blame the shorts when these things blow up. And, oh, naked shorting this and naked shorting that. That's, I fear, not an Occupy Wall Street movement, but I fear when these blow up, all the repercussions, it won't last. But I feel bad because I think people are going to get harmed. Yeah, people are going to get hosed, yes. But as you know, if you look at venture capital, it is known that you have to fake it till you make it. Meaning most really great ideas aren't grounded on tangible delivery of actual facts at the time it's funded. It's really someone's vision. So, But those are private. So those not marked. So WeWork was a meme stock that was private. Right. And it was visible because SoftBank was evaluating. They're raising money at 40 billion, 50 billion. That was a meme stock. Now, retail didn't get pummeled on that. That was a few large you know, investors. But to me, what you're saying, that's venture capital. Right. That proved to be a meme private company. Sure. It's now public again and it's back and giving fake guidance. But we should all look back on our careers in the 90s and 2000s. There were so many pink sheet stocks that were meme stocks. None of us ever trafficked in because we wouldn't waste our time, but they were boiler room stocks. I mean, I just don't think anything's that different today. I agree with that. I'll just say this. The short squeezes will continue until the memes end. It's that simple. If they're not memeing, these stocks don't go up. So if they're not memeing all day on Reddit and they're not doing it all night on Twitter, and if they're not all collaborating, if they're not all trying to stick it to the man, whether it's a hedge fund or or whoever it is, they're not going up. It's that simple. So what's different this time, and you and I talked about this last night, 
is that you could make a great argument in 1999 on a Yahoo message board. The ability for it to go viral outside of that message board was basically zero. The ability – CNBC wouldn't picked up some comment on, on a Yahoo message board and this, and we were running tweets all day long on this and that or whatever. So it is different this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you this. I suspect this could happen. If I was this guy, Aaron, at AMC, and I have a $30 billion market cap and I have $11 billion in debt and he's trying to raise some cash and this and that, and I'd look over at GameStop and I'd see what's going on over there, and that's a $15 billion market cap and they have no debt, I'd buy I'd, – I'd use my stock. I buy GameStop. You would have literally a seventy billion dollar meme behemoth in like that. Can you imagine if you took these two crazy freaking things and you mashed them up together? What that would it might break the market actually, just for whatever that's worth. Dan, the investment banker, love it. You can get two percent for structuring that transaction. I, I usually Dan. for for meme stocks, I get three percent. Dan, your investment banking fee notwithstanding, the other thing that's topical, Tom, that we need to talk about is crypto because I mean. The world is awash in just crypto fanatics. Uh, we were I was on a Michael Saylor Twitter Spaces call the other night for 90 minutes. It was fascinating. I mean, this is just a broad brush questions, but you know, what are your thoughts here around crypto and what they mean to the broader market? I'm a believer in digital assets as a diversifier for someone's portfolio. You know, we've been writing about Bitcoin for for many years now. And I think there are a lot of appealing things about blockchain and censorship resistance and proof of work and code as language and math. But if someone told me, do I think things happening in 2021 are healthy, I think there's a lot of misallocation of time and capital and investor focus. So I I would say crypto market, I'm still bullish on, but there's probably a lot of things I, I would say aren't healthy. How do you come up with $125,000 target on Bitcoin? Is it technical? Is, there, can you, is it a total market cap you're looking at that needs to be allocated? I don't have the full numbers in front of me, but it's really based on two variables. The first is the idea of a Bitcoin as a, as a network value asset, meaning number of wallets times the usage gets you a equation and we've been using this as fair value for Bitcoin. So that number will exit the year around 120,000. And the second is break evens, cost of mining for a Bitcoin. Now that changes with difficulty and if you shut down mining the difficulty would adjust, but it's the break even cost of Bitcoin times a price to book multiple. And so that's how we try and get it to around 125,000. It's not precision though. It's a it's a orders of magnitude. So if Bitcoin's at 40,000, then Bitcoin's a buy. Well, you know, you can go down to volcanoes in El Salvador now, I think, that's going to be a cheap form of power, right, for Bitcoin, since the dictator of El Salvador has decided to make Bitcoin the national currency, and he's saying that he can produce it at a low cost because they can do geothermal. So there, that's all solved, so don't worry about that. So Dan, your next vacation, I know you're going, you should do Dan versus the volcano. So so let me ask you that. So Tom Lee has been on the crypto train for a very long time. He was not a Johnny-come-lately. One of the the things that I think is most bearish about this crypto move this year in general is that there don't seem to be any naysayers anymore. There's this guy Schiff out there who's just trolling everybody on Twitter. You know what I mean? He's a bit of a goofball. But – Everybody's all in. All the suits are in, right, Tom? And think about it. When when you and I 
first um, started talking about this, I think it was 2017, you started coming on CNBC talking about it. You built a whole practice around it, a research practice. So my question to you is, what's different than the frenzy that we saw in 2017? There were ICOs. There's some pretty infamous blowups now. We have these finfluencers, these financial influencers. They were around then. There's a lot more of them now. Any differences or are there any similarities that cause you to be less bullish right now? I think Bitcoin's a lot healthier today. Because the threats in 2017 would have come from Asia. You know, as you know, Korea was one of the countries that really quashed the Bitcoin price in 2017 because they, without formal decree, forced every Korean bank to stop accepting off-ramps of crypto. So you, in Korea, basically your Bitcoin became trapped. You know, today if Korea did it, or you saw China did, banned mining, Bitcoin fell, but Bitcoin is, really isn't falling anymore. So I think the real threat today to crypto is the developed world now. But the second big change, which I think is unhealthy, is I'm just going to guess, but I'd say 80% of the people who've come into crypto this year don't care about the technology. So you've got a cohort that's involved because they're attracted to the memes or to the price, and that's different. Because I'd say in 2017, it's even though it was a hobbyist, People were getting involved because they liked the technology. Yeah, but there was definitely a retail frenzy. When you were talking about wallet growth, I mean, just think about Coinbase back then. It was like the, it was like the Robin Hood of 2021, right, for all intents and purposes. But Coinbase is still small back then. And it's pretty small today. I mean, if you think about Coinbase is what, the 20th? most active crypto exchange in the world. Yeah. Well, but it's an easy on-ramp for a lot of newbies, I guess is what I would say. Right? For U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. But Tom, you just mentioned, you know, the China crackdown on mining and you said, well, it stopped going down. I mean, Bitcoin's having a lot of problems here at 40,000. Know, that was the breakout level in early February. It went straight from 42,000 to 64,500. A whole host of things from a sentiment standpoint. I think that Coinbase IPO direct listing was real sentiment top for a lot of people, at least here in the U.S., then you had what some might call this crackdown in China on mining. What if they were to double down on that? I just want to just point out what you just said. There's a lot of bad things that have happened at Bitcoin, and it's at 40, but it really hasn't gone down. But more bad things would have to happen for it to go down more. The only reason I'm asking is a lot of good things could happen too. What are those things right now? I'm not pushing for the sake of pushing. I look from a sentiment standpoint. Actually, one thing that I think that, that is hurt Bitcoin. In 2017, every crypto pair was quoted in BTC. Now, because of NFTs, more is quoted in ETH or stablecoin. So you're right. Bitcoin doesn't have as much thunder. And again, that's you know weakened sort of the Bitcoin thesis, not necessarily digital assets. But one of the things that we've written about at Fundstrat and at FS Insight is that we believe crypto stocks can deliver the same or better returns than digital assets. So the, one of the biggest changes this year is you could actually just own some of the equities and do just as well. Whether it's Silvergate, Metropolitan Bank, Mogo, these are in some ways more interesting stories than the underlying digital asset. You know, Dan, you made a comment before and like all the suits are on board and I don't consider myself, you know, a suit, but I don't consider myself a bull on Bitcoin. I wouldn't say I'm bearish. I think people talk the game like they're involved because they want to be cool and don't want to be ostracized. But every time I see this Bitcoin sell off, I feel like it goes from weak hands to stronger hands to a degree. And it doesn't take much, as you know, for an allocation from an institution into Bitcoin, either out of gold or something. And I, you, what just happened again? Gold got hit on Fed concerns. 
that stabilizes Bitcoin. There is a correlation, there has been, between gold and Bitcoin allocation. But Tom, to your point on these stable coins and stuff, but the meme stocks of digital assets, right? We, we saw this Titan, whatever this thing, this Titan, which is part of Iron Finance, which Cuban, I think, was an investor and he didn't create it, but tweeted about it. It went to 65, it was at $65 yesterday, $2 billion valuation. It's at zero. So yes, it's $2 billion. I think we all lose fact of what's $2 billion. It's still, that's a lot of retail money and that's all retail, you know, money that got wiped out. So what kind of experience is that for the retail investor? Because they're going to conflate that with Bitcoin. I mean, in, in my opinion. Digital assets still a huge experiment. You know, this is genius gone bad. There's 20,000 crypto projects out there. If you want to fund a DeFi crypto project today, you're going to, you might actually have a network value starting at a hundred million. Of course, of the mortality rate is going to be catastrophically high, 99.999%. And uh, anything algorithmically driven, the idea of like an algorithmic driven stablecoin is itself an oxymoron. But one thing that people shouldn't be too snarky about, crypto solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. If someone's wealthy and they had a bank, crypto doesn't make any sense to them because they're like, banks are super cheap. It's such a lie. If you look at the OEC data and you say, what is the cost of the financial system to the to the global economy to use the fiat system? I mean, what would you guess the percentages? I couldn't begin to guess. Well, most people would say, well, banks are cheap. So it's probably 1%. 1%. I was, I was going to say 2%, but let's call it 1%. It's 4% okay. of the global economy. I missed. Yeah. All right. By the way, wealthier people don't pay 4%. No one pays 4% on, but the average- Thanks to the Fed. Yeah, but a lot of people who are unbanked try to use the bank. They make a mistake on their bank. Banking might even cost them 10% of their savings. It takes the average person three and a half weeks a year to pay for the right to use the financial system. Which is remarkable if you think about it. Tom, before we get out of here, June 28th is coming up. FS Insight, you chose to invite Dan Nathan and you left out Danny Moses and myself, which is fine. Can you speak to what's going on on the 28th with FS Insight? Well, we've done a lot of stuff with you guys over the years. I'm a big fan of everything you guys do. So we just want to introduce some of you guys. And listen, if you want to make it a three-way, three for one, a three for, yeah. I'm happy with that. It's not that, ca- this is not, this hey, is a family show, let Tom. Me, Let's just keep it clean Let, let me just say one thing. Tom, I've actually been talking to Tom since you left JP and you started Fundstrat and then you started this retail project, um, FS Insight. It, it, it really is amazing. It's one of my first reads every single day. Um, so I was actually very honored, uh, Tom, that you asked me to take part in that on the 28th. So, guys, check it out, please. Um, follow Tom um, at Funstrat on Twitter, and we really thank you for coming by. Tom, really good seeing you again. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.